right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, we are in verses 21 through 25 this morning. And as we are concluding uh, chapter 7, let's remember that one of the big themes of this chapter is the antithesis of the law to the Spirit, that the law can't save us. What the law does do, it's not bad, it is a good thing. It points past itself to the God who sends Jesus to redeem us. It recognizes that it cannot transform us. It admits that we don't have a knowledge problem. We have a heart issue that requires transformation and resurrection. And so, praise be to God that we were not left with something that couldn't get us where we desperately need to go. And so this is what Paul is saying here, and he's using himself in some measure, and he's pointing to any one of us, saved or unsaved, who seeks to try to walk outside of the Spirit. If a saved person tries to use the law as the means by which they grow closer to God, it will destroy them. You can't get there from here. And so it's important that we recognize the function of the law as a means of grace. In fact, that all means of grace point past themselves to the one who gave it, right? It's the means by which we see the giver of grace and draw closer. And so that's how we would want to use it, as Paul calls us to. And so uh, the key truth that I want you to walk away with uh, is this, is that God's law helps reveal that our salvation, and this word is critical, tangibly occurs in God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 7, 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we were stepping into this, the opening question that I have for us is a very important one, and it's what circumstances or situations have helped bring you to the end of yourself? Now, there are many ends to ourselves. It may, if you live long enough, you find the end often, it seems. But it's important that we recognize that it serves a purpose. In the hands of the redeeming and reconciling God, it is a means of grace for us to be brought to the end of ourselves. And some of that instrumentation can be in no particular order or because of no particular experience on my part, marriage, children, having children, grandchildren not so much, children. I've got grandchildren, they, they're great so far. Uh, um, job, suffering, world events, right? These things, uh, what we've been through with COVID for many felt the weight of being brought to the end of themselves and their own strength and their own ability to be able to accomplish things or even think straight. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you couldn't sleep? You couldn't think straight. No matter how hard you tried, 
in all your Herculean effort, all the magnesium you drank and all the other stuff you did to try to help yourself, it couldn't shut it off. Now the real question, because by nature of living in a fallen world, we will reach the end of ourselves many times over, right? That's just a, that's part and parcel, it's baked in the cake. The real question is what you do when it happens. And the way we word that question here is important. Which way do you run? When you come to the end of yourself, which way do you run? We were talking at the office this week about how so often what we do when we reach the end of ourselves is try to empty the entire universe of its meaning, right? So nothing can mean anything if I'm suffering. Right? And many of you uh, find yourself kind of in that place. Well, I-, I can honestly say that's yet to help. I've emptied the universe, metaphorically, many times over its meaning, usually when I procrastinate. For some reason, I reach the end of myself when I procrastinate, and then I want to empty the universe of meaning, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't help matters at all. And so, but this is what we do, right? Instead of running to the place where we can actually receive what we so desperately need at the end of ourselves, which is refilling, refreshment, and renewal, we run instead to the things that only continue to make us aware of the emptiness of ourselves. And so that is our predilection. So we need to recognize that, no, this can be a means of grace, that when the Lord, in his sovereignty, uses something to bring you to the end of yourself, it is actually to turn you toward him. And if you look back over when you found yourself at the end of yourself, so often what you will discover is you had been draining the account dry before you hit bottom. You had not been putting back in terms of worship so often. Not every time, not always the case, but can frequently be the case. And so this is the question before us that Paul is actually getting to. He's trying desperately to communicate to us that you must reach the end of yourself in order to be able to fully appreciate who Christ is, what he has done for you, and to be able to even receive it in the first place. You hold on to any shred of yourself, any shred of dignity. If you try to hold on to anything like the sin of Achan, like if you hide some little bobble or or trinket to try to impress the Lord, and it will continue to drain you dry. So praise be to God that we actually can say, I have nothing to give. One of the more honest confessions any of us could utter. And so, let's see how Paul does this and what he points to in this text. He says, so, I find it to be a law that when I try to do right or want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, it's important that we recognize he's using the word law in different ways. There's law proper, which is a reference to God's law, essentially the Ten Commandments, or love God, love your neighbor as you have been loved. And then there's also the way he's using it here in this particular piece, that it is a fixed reality. It is something that he has discovered to be a consistent truity, no matter how many different ways he tries it. So what he's saying is, I have discovered that it is a law. It is a fixed reality. No matter how many different ways I try it, I have discovered that when I want to do right, in and of my own strength, knowledge, and understanding, based on what he said previously, evil lies close at hand. What he's saying is the desire to do good is not enough. 
For many of us, we mistakenly think that the desire to do good ought to count for something. We don't necessarily think it's the whole thing, but how many times have you said, well, yeah, but, but my heart behind it, right? My heart behind it. You, you just didn't understand. I was trying to love you, and you just, you're just dumb, or you're blind, or something's wrong with you because you, you're not seeing my heart behind it. My desire was good, right? Like the time that my father-in-law bought my mother-in-law a lawnmower for her birthday. She has never cut a single blade of grass in her entire life. He said, yeah, but if you were to, this is a really good lawnmower. And he was like, well, if you ain't going to use it, I'll use it. And you benefit from a cut yard. I think it cost him like an entire bedroom set and some other items when the smoke cleared, right? And that's not necessarily a nefarious example, but that's kind of what we're trying to do oftentimes to say, look, the desire's got to count for something. I wanted to, but messed up. The desire counts for nothing, as Paul says. It can't get you there, is his point, ultimately. And he goes on, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So he's saying that, that, that you, can, you can even go so far as to recognize the goodness of God's law and its beauty and its, and its glory. Remember who he, who he was. He was a Pharisee. And remember what that means. He would have studied scripture way better than any of us. None of us could have come at Paul flat-footed and thought we could somehow pin him in a corner and pwn him. That ain't happening. And so he was somebody who genuinely delighted in it and thought when he was killing Christians that he was doing God's work. So you, you, can, you can even say that God's law is good. You can long for it in your inner being. It's not enough. It won't get you to Jesus, which is where we need to go. He goes on. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is important language. He's saying this isn't just a cognitive idea. This is not just an abstract concept. What he actually sees is this is playing itself out in my very body. It is an embodied reality. And that's very important for us because I think we are, and we come by this honest, we are Reformed and Presbyterian as such. And we think that sometimes if you just get the right knowledge, if you got your systematic set up or your biblical theology squared away and you, you can find Christ in the Old Testament, that should count for something, right? No. Not unless it points past itself to the God who loves us and sent Jesus to die for us. It's just information. And in fact, it's dangerous information if used wrongly. And so he recognizes that this, this just isn't a concept we're talking about. This, it plays itself out. My body is enshackled in sin. and My mind can do all that it wants to do. 
I can't, I, the, the R&B song, my mind says yes, but my body says no, or the other way around. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why that came to mind, uh, but it did. It seemed fitting. Uh, but but, you, but the R&B singer, he understands. Like, he actually is closer to Paul than many of us. But how desire works is it plays itself out. Sin plays itself out. It's not something you actually are hiding. It's not personal. It's not individual. No, it lives out of you and is evident to those around you, more than you know. And so he is recognizing that he can't get there, and he's captive. Remember, we've talked about that the power of sin, and this is something I think we, we tend to fail to take as seriously as we ought. That sin is utterly tyrannical. It will allow no other person or thing or any of that to sit on the, 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 uh, the, our hearts in any way, shape, or form. It won't allow another king to reign. And it is utterly uninterested in your cultivation or your growth or your improvement. It only is concerned with destroying you. That's critical for us to understand. And did you know that this isn't just crack addiction we're talking about here? This isn't just like something that you can physically like put up pictures like, uh, this is when they started and here's when, they, no. We can't put up a picture of like, here, here's when, uh, I'll just, I'm, I'm in danger if I pick a name, it's gonna land on somebody. Uh, Cameron. Here's a picture of Cameron before he started being really arrogant and prideful, and thinking that he knew a bunch of stuff and that he was the best Christian anybody ought to meet. And here's, here's him after. Would I look any different? In fact, I may have a bigger smile. Right? I, I may even look a little more lively because I've got a reason for being. See, that's the danger here is that we... At times, I think, over-sanitize our need. We over-sanitize what actually is obnoxious to the Lord our God. That we actually think that there's a disunity between our sin and their sin. It's interesting, serving at the rescue mission, they did it there too, by the way. It's fascinating. They, the alcoholics who were at the rescue mission, homeless with nowhere to go, would say of the crack addicts, well, at least I'm not a crack addict. You're home. Like, you got nowhere to go. Like, yeah, but. But what? It's all flat here. We do it too. We have sanitized our sin, and when you sanitize what it is that is wrong with you, then you sanitize the one who can fix it. There is no sanitary Jesus. He died. I mean, that's why we, we talk about some of the things we talk about, like blood and some of those things in songs, everybody's like, oh, that's kind of gross and creepy. No, no, he really died. It was a real death. It was horrible. We're gonna talk about it over Easter. And so we, we need to not sanitize. And, and again, this ain't about worm theology. So we've got to be real careful because you can drift off into this whole, like the only thing you would hear in this passage is, oh yeah, oh wretched man that I am. Ain't no sinner worse than me. Right? Again, we're trying that hierarchy business just the other way around. 
This is not about worm theology. This is about redemption, that we would recognize that we really, actually, truly, tangibly need Jesus. And that Susan, who loved Jesus from the time she had any sort of conscious cognition, had to come to the end of herself in that process. It took a while. It took a while. I'm not talking three days. I'm not talking six months. I'm talking decades. And it was difficult because she never really thought that she was necessarily as bad as I was. And I know many of you, I've heard this. Many of you talked about how lucky Susan is to be married. It really is the other way around. Uh, I don't know if y'all know that or not. But thank you so much for thinking otherwise. But see, even that belies something, doesn't it? We're always comparing. Cameron's the lucky one. Look at that dude. He's wild. Like he, he don't, he don't act like he's got no sense half the time. He's like quoting R&B songs and the scripture. He, he, he's just crazy, right? <laughs> and poor Susan, just so stable, cooks good, man. You know, she's a, I've heard some of y'all say she's a saint. And I appreciate that, and I think she does too. But, but that's actually really, really bad theology. It really is. Because it seems to suggest she doesn't need Jesus as much as I do. That her sin somehow is actually more sanitary than mine. No, it ain't. And I ain't trying to put her on blast. I'd love for her to have a halo. I'd love to be able to say, I'm married to a saint. <laughs> what y'all got? <laughs> but that's hierarchy again, right? And so we need, to be, we need to be careful that we, that we don't look at the external and say, and parents hear me rightly, hey, my, my, my kid's taking notes in the sermon. That's, that's good. That's awesome. They're really paying attention. And that's better than the kid that ain't here or the kid that's, that's looking on their phone or better than the kid that's causing all kind of trouble. No. Actually, no, unless the kid taking notes has come to the end of themselves and truly know their need for Jesus. I'm glad they are. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, trying to be weird about it. But too often, we are looking at the wrong thing. And yes, we would love it for our kids to, to, to take Susan's route, kind of, except for the part where she comes to the end of herself, because if you knew that part of the story, you wouldn't wish that on your kid. But every child must go that way. Every adult must go that way. And you know what, what I haven't said that is implicit in this is that that means they will suffer. They will suffer. They will suffer the end of themselves. Every single one of you who has found yourself at the end of yourself recognizes it ain't fun at all, which is why we struggle with which way to run call God loving? Why do you let this happen? How many of you said that? That's when you know you're kind of getting to the end of yourself, if not there. How could God let this happen? Great question, terrible accusation. And, and so often we try to mediate and end up robbing our children of the thing that they needed the most, which was to come face to face with the Lord their God through Jesus. So we have to be careful 
that we don't take Paul's words and turn them into something they're not, or to fail to realize he's talking to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who were divided because each thought they were better than the other. The Jewish Christians, because they thought they were more sanitized, cleaner. The Gentile Christians, because they thought they had a better prodigal story. So what he's trying to get them to see is, no, it's all of you. You all have the same need, and the same is true in this room. And so he keeps going. As he recognizes it's an embodied reality, it causes him to go, wretched man that I am. Paul, a Pharisee, calling himself wretched. And even more important, asking this question, who, and let me point out, not what, You notice the difference? You know why that makes all the difference in the world? Who is relational? What is commodified exchange? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Not this mind of death, not these thoughts of death, this body. Meaning there had to be a death That would bring resurrection and transform. This is why Christ was not a spirit or a ghost. He was a true flesh and blood man who came and took on, and I love the way, and it it helps us to understand, it's referred to him, him essentially taking on humiliation. If you were the creator of the universe, king, and you had to come slum with us? Put on flesh, like accept limitations? You do know that in his humanity, he was limited. It says so. He has no idea when he's coming back. Only God does. God will say, depart, it is time for you to go. But he doesn't know. He did not use his powers in the way that Satan tempted him to. We've talked about this. What would you do? if I came up and ripped some of your facial hair out and you had the ability to incinerate me on the spot, I doubt you show restraint. What if I just slapped you upside the head as you were coming in as an act of hospitality and said, prophesy, give me a word. How many of y'all are like, man, this dude, I like this. This is different. And you had the ability to, to send my arrogant self into the ether, how many of you could show restraint? None. And yet that's what Jesus did. He took that on, suffered that for us, and was brought to the end of himself. Don't miss this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cries out, if there be any other way, as he's sweating drops of blood, as he was praying for us, We can barely pray five minutes for somebody else if we remember. But he was crying out on our behalf and said, yet not my will, but your will be done. He came to the end of himself on the cross when he cried out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, which is our redemption, he endured the shame of the cross. So that we, the end that we find ourselves at, it ain't even the end. 
So often we see that like, hey, I've come to the end of my, no, you've come to the beginning in redemption. It is the end if that's all you have. If that's, you're going to empty the universe of its meaning and say, no one can save me. Okay, ain't no Superman coming, which Hebrews actually says, right? Like if you ignore Jesus, if his sacrifice is not sufficient for you, ain't nobody coming after him. Better. You might want to think that through. And so it is important that we see that when the Lord brings us to what we perceive to be the end of ourselves, to reveal himself to us, to draw us to himself, that that is an opportunity for resurrected beginning. It happens in justification, but it also happens in sanctification. It's a different process in the sense of what goes on in the eternal throne room, but There are times when even Christians must be brought to the end of their arrogant selves. God loves us too much to leave us, which is why suffering is a critical component to union with Christ. And notice when he asks this question and he speaks of it being, deliver me from this body of death, this embodied reality, some argue that Paul breaks character here. Yeah, he's been in Romans. It's just been so beautiful the, the way he strung things together, and he's and he's he's making these beautiful arguments. That here, <clears throat> this is actually an, an an explosion of praise that comes from him because he knows the answer. Notice he doesn't go on into right here a theological explanation of what the answer is, but notice he cannot help himself. He is so excited to get to it. He's going to in eight, but he's not there yet, which is why the next sentence almost seems out of place. But as he's asking this question, even he with pen in hand can't stop praising the Lord. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. No further explanation. And then he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Would that we would have that kind of ability to break out in praise on things, even when it's mentioned, that we would recognize that when you speak of your sin, when you come to the end of yourself, that is an opportunity for you to give praise. That's why you should run to the throne of grace. To receive what you need, both mercy and grace in a time of trouble. Is this who we are? Do we understand that we have to come to the end of ourselves, that that is how sin is to be dealt with. God is too loving to leave parts of it laying about in your being because he knows that just as his holiness is absolute, so is the darkness of sin. Not in power or comparison, but by virtue of nature. Sin does not tolerate holiness just as holiness does not tolerate sin. You follow? And so praise be to God that he is so exacting and thorough in dealing with what is broken in us and does so in and through the eternal person and work of Jesus Christ. And so listen at what Charles Hodge says about this passage. He says, the Christian's victory over sin cannot be achieved by the strength of their resolutions, 
nor by plainness and force of moral motives. He just said, Life hack or any book that you might read or any blog that you may follow that's going to help you be more productive and better at everything. Nor by any resources within themselves. So there's nothing outside of you. There is nothing inside of you that can do what needs to be done to grant victory over sin. All it can do is actually fan it further into flame. They look to Jesus Christ and conquer in his strength. In other words, the victory is not in the way of nature, but by grace. It can't be called anything else. If you bring nothing to the table, if you add nothing to it, if you can't do anything to earn it, you can't do anything to improve upon it in and of your own strength and ability, it can't be called anything else but grace. So this is a good question for you to ponder this Lord's Day Sabbath and to do so with friends and family, not just in and of yourself, but to have a conversation. Our kids need to hear us talk about these things. They need to learn how to be conversant with the gospel and the Lord's Day Sabbath is a great place to do that. What has Christ rescued you from or is he rescuing from now in order to grant you newness of life? What, another way to put it is what ends is Christ bringing you to and his grace and his mercy to draw you to himself, to grant you newness of life, to actually genuinely transform you into his image? This is what Paul is trying to get us to understand is necessary and that we are unified in it across the board. So Romans 7, 21 through 25 teaches us that God's law helps reveal that our salvation, and again, this word is crucial, tangibly occurs. Something actually happens in space, time, and reality. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. What a gift it is to us to be able to take communion on a day in which we have heard that we need to come to the end of ourselves. There are many of you in this room that are either on the way to the end of yourself in some measure on some issue, or you are at the end of yourself. What this table calls for you to do is to respond in faith to that end and either, for some of you it may be, confess Christ as Savior for the first time. This table calls you hospitably to the love of God. For others of you who are Christians, it is to nourish your faith and the power of the Holy Spirit so that when you hit end or are experiencing the end and suffering that you would be able to persevere toward Christ. Not persevere in suffering. Not persevere in finding a further bottom or digging your way out. This nourishes us genuinely and truly in real space, time, and reality, tangibly, so that we can be drawn closer to Jesus. And remember, he wanted them to have something tangible before them, right? 
He wanted them to something they could touch, something they could taste, and that the church would have in an ongoing fashion to remember God's love for us in and through the death and resurrection of Christ. So let me say, for those of you who have yet to confess Christ as Savior and your need, let this, let this moment pass you by. Don't partake of these elements. This is for the nourishment of those who already are in Christ Jesus. If you are harboring in your heart an unforgiveness that you don't think you need to work on arrogantly, or you are arrogantly persisting in sin and, have, and don't think it's a problem, you should not take of this table either. This is for the humble and the broken who have hit the end of themselves at least one really good time. And so for everybody else, this is a means of grace that points past itself, that is not to be worshipped, that is not to be idolized, but is to be uh, used to be drawn further up and further into the very love of God. Remember what Jesus said as they were sitting around. It was his last meal with them before his death and resurrection. And they didn't fully comprehend what was going on, and maybe we don't necessarily either, but what we need to recognize is that it is a gift. And he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. And in that givenness, he was saying that he would take on the fullness of their shame and guilt, the wrath of God do justly do our sin, that it would be satisfied in full. Again, that's hard for me to comprehend because I've sinned since the time I've been saved. I may have even sinned sometime this morning at some point. I think I yelled at the Wilson kids. Felt like sin. Felt like sin to them too, I think. Forgive me. And so... We need to be reminded and nourished so that I don't go thinking that uh, being mean to some kids at the church disqualifies me from God's love. You may say, well, it's close, yeah, but it don't, right? And for you too, that when you, you receive and think uh, on the body that's been given for you, that you would be reminded of how you reached that end, knowing you couldn't save yourself. And take and eat knowing that Christ continues to advocate for you and intercede for you. To remind you in the power of the Holy Spirit that you are his and he is yours. And then at the end of the meal, he grabbed the cup and he raised it up. And he said, this, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. That they would not only be set free from sin and death, which is a great gift, by the way. But then they would be empowered in resurrected newness of life to actually walk in the things of the Lord and be pleasing to the Lord and contribute to his eternal kingdom. What a gift that is in a life that sometimes can feel so meaningless. And so as you receive the cup, think on, meditate on how the Lord is calling you to walk in newness of life and grant meaning to that which is so every day. So may it nourish us to recognize how good God is, how gracious he is to bring us to the end of ourselves many times over and draw us back to himself, given our hard-headedness, our hard-heartedness, our stiff-neckedness. 
Praise God that he just didn't save us and then go to the back of the universe and say, y'all figure it out from here. As we look around the world, if there is no God who reigns, if there's no God who is sovereign and is good, we're in trouble. But we get to take and eat because there is. And he is interested in us and he is at work in us. Let me pray and then I'll give you some instructions. Father, thank you for this gift this means of grace that points past itself to you to remind us that Christ died for us. That's hard for us to comprehend. How could a God take on flesh and die? Utterly unique in the pantheon of religions. And yet, to Paul's point, something we actually have an inkling of as a truity of its necessity, because we've tried for centuries to improve ourselves and to save ourselves, and it's a miserable track record thus far. So Lord, I, I pray that we would taste and see that you are good, that we would be reminded of our deliverance from what could have been an eternal end and instead becomes an eternal beginning. God, would you also nourish us to walk in newness of life in the power of the resurrection, that we would actually in word and deed and in humility and in the fruits of repentance and in the fruit of the Spirit, display your glory for your good, our joy, and the life of the world. Nourish us in the Spirit, O oh Lord. In Christ's name, amen.